welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will continue teaching us from Genesis chapter 23 on how Abraham only purchased property once, a burial cave for his dead wife, Sarah, which is still in Hebron today, but it would risk our own life to see it as a mosque now sits on top of it. And we hope you're enjoying these tremendous Bible studies, this great expository teaching that we're getting from Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. And we do appreciate your listenership, and we hope that you'll go to our website, friendshipwithgod.org, to take advantage of some of our free resources or to go to our bookstore that's there. But we also want to make an invitation to you for 2015 to become one of our monthly supporters of Friendship with God so we can continue broadcasting on this station in your city, as well as providing the messages for free for you, the listener, on iTunes.com, SermonAudio.com, and also on our main website, FriendshipWithGod.org. All there for free listening and free download, but it's there with your support, and we need you to become a monthly supporter if you can. You can call us at 800 247 3051, and we can set you up for that. That's 800-247-3051, and that'll help continue Friendship with God airing on this station in your city and also available by podcast and MP3 download. Again, it's 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051 to support Friendship with God this year in 2015 with a monthly donation of any amount. Or you can donate one time online at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God. So we looked at verse 8, where it says, And he communed with them. And Abraham took time to spend with these sons of Heth. He took this time. And this is the way we bring lost people to the Lord Jesus Christ. By communing with them. It's not just by knocking on their door and saying, Hello, are you, you know you're a sinner on your way to hell. And by the way, good morning. No, it's spending time with them. It's interesting, when you think about the tabernacle, just how beautiful and just how magnificent the tabernacle was with its beautiful coverings and tapestries of fine white linen and the embroidery and the blue and the purple and the scarlet and the gold was gorgeous. And the ram skins dyed red and the badger skins and the goat's hair and all those coverings were... And when you stood inside the tabernacle and you looked up and you say, gorgeous beauty, and you look at the wall, gorgeous beauty, magnificent until you look down. And when you look down, all you see is the desert sand. Now why? Because they ran out of money, they couldn't make a floor? (laughs) When Moses called for the donation of the tabernacle, it says in Exodus that they brought so much that Moses had to say, we have enough and too much. Don't bring anything more. Wouldn't that be something? We get up on Sunday morning, said, no more offerings. (laughs) We have too much. (laughs) They had plenty. It was purposeful that there was no beautiful floor. Down there are the tabernacle, like the walls and the ceilings, because just the ground, just the sand. It's so striking. It's no floor. Just why? To teach us that we are not to insulate ourselves from the world. We're not. Like Abraham, we are to commune with the lost in the world in order to reach them and bring them. The tabernacle, just the desert floor for the floor, teaching us that we're not to insulate ourselves from this world by only getting together with Christians at church by having no meaningful contact with the lost? If I was to say to you, all right, this Friday night, we're going to have a special dinner for the lost. Everyone bring a lost friend this Friday night. This Friday night is for us to bring lost friends. I wonder how many would say, I don't have any lost friends. I don't have anybody to bring. That ought not to be. Verse 8 says that Abraham communed with them. Now we see that uh, Abraham, in verse 8, he spent time with them so they could become his friends. 
And they did become his friends to the extent that it was in their mind and their heart to help him. They were his friends. He said that in verse 8. He communed with them saying, if it be in your mind, if it be in your heart, if you be in your will, if you be in your soul, that I should bury my dead, hear me and entreat for me. He had become such friends with these sons that he could say that. It's in your mind. And he could say, I can see you really want to help me. And we saw how Abraham then trusted them to negotiate for him to ask Ephron to sell the cave that he had. In verse 9, that he may give me the cave which he hath, which is in the end of his field. So really we see here in Abraham, he's making himself vulnerable. He's making himself vulnerable to these Hittites by asking them to go intercede. This is important. He has a dead body of wife on his hands here that's deteriorating, and there's not a lot of other options around. But he does this. And so Abraham trusts them. He had to trust them. And if they were not Abraham's friends and really wanted Abraham to get out of there, they would have went to Ephron and said, you know, Abraham, he'll be a bad neighbor. You don't want to sell him your cave, you know. But Abraham had taken the time to build the friendship, build the bridge of friendships, because he would know they will not double-cross him. And it's interesting how Abraham describes the location of the cave in verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field, for as much money and so forth. He describes the location of the cave as at the end of his field. So we picture the cave of Machpelah, and we see a field, and at the far end of this field is this cave of Machpelah here. And we see from verse 17 that the field had trees as bordering it to mark it out. And we see from verse 9 that Abraham, he just wanted to buy the cave. He wasn't asking for the field. He didn't want to buy the field. He didn't want to buy the trees. He just wanted to buy the cave. But in the end, Abraham ends up buying everything, the field, the trees, the cave. I don't know why. I guess Ephron, he just didn't want to own a field that every time he looked up, he'd see this place that was a burial place for Abraham. I don't know, his family. Maybe it's too spooky for him. <laughs> and he wanted to be working in a field and look up and see this burial place. But when you think about it, the cave at the end of the field, the field represents work. And a field is where you work planting and harvesting and grazing animals in the field. It's a place of work. You can think of it like a place of life work. And for Ephron, it was a place of work. And for us, we can think of the field as representing the work that we're involved in in life, our life work. And at the end of the field, it's interesting, in the end of the field is the cave or the grave. And whatever our field is, whatever our life work is, there's a grave at the end of the field. And it's healthy for us to consider that, to think about that. The problem is, is that we, man, has a tendency to only see the field and not to see the cave at the end of the field. To only see the field of his work and not to see the grave at the end of his life. Because man gets all wrapped up in his work, all wrapped up in his work, all wrapped up in his field. And he's distracted himself from seeing the cave at the end of the field. Especially the Jewish people are good at this. And that's exactly why Moses prayed for the Jewish people for wisdom. He said, oh, I want a wisdom, a certain wisdom in them, and an understanding. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 28 through 29, Deuteronomy 32, verse 28 through 29, Moses said, for they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this that they would consider their latter end. That was his prayer in Deuteronomy 32, 28, 29. Oh, that they were wise, they would consider their latter end. He prayed that. In other words, he was praying that they'd lift up their eyes from the field of their work to see the cave at the end of the field and consider their latter end. You know, this last week I had the privilege of hosting a dear Jewish friend of mine over to the house for lunch. I made him lunch. We ate. We sat outside. We talked a lot. And at the end of eating this, 
the lunch that I made for him. I asked him how old he was. Looks at me strange. He said he was 68. I said, oh, my wife was 67 when she left the earth. So I said, uh, I just have one question. And I said, what's going to happen to you after you die? He looks shocked. He looks at me. He says, you feed me this great steak, and then you hit me with this question. (laughs) And then he proceeded to tell me about all the business deals that he's got going on in Mexico and France and everywhere and what he's hoping to accomplish. And I couldn't bring him back to consider his latter end, to consider the cave at the end of the field. Even though I asked him, I said, wouldn't it be a tragedy if you distracted yourself with all of your business deals all the way up to your death, refusing to consider your latter end and failed to be reconciled to God by accepting the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins? Even though I said that to him, you know, he just kept going on about his business deals. And I said, okay, you want to talk about business? I said, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ asked a business question about life. When the star of Everybody Loves Raymond, you know, Everybody Loves Raymond, at his retirement party, where he, after he had made $100 million from making the TV series, and his brother, who's a believer, he slipped into his pocket a piece of paper with that question on it. And the question is from Mark 8, 36 through 37, 8, 36 through 37, for what shall it profit a man? If he gain the whole world, what shall it profit? You know, very, very important word in business, profit. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain, another important business, the word gain, the whole world and lose, also profit loss statements, lose his own soul, and what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? All very business terms, profit loss statement, exchange. So I asked my friend, let's say you make the greatest business deals and you end up with billions of dollars. How long do you want to keep those billions? Where is the profit if you have those billions for a short time and then you lose your own soul. How much time with those billions are you willing to accept in exchange for your soul? Ten years with those billions till you're 78 years old? Is that worth it? You lose your soul for those ten years? Twenty years with those billions till you're 88 years old? I don't know what kind of shape you'll be in in 88, but anyway, let's say, is that worth it? And when I told him that he needed to be saved from his sin, he said, sin? What sin? And as an example, I said, well, the sin of looking with lust at a woman in your heart. He particularly laughed at that, laughed at that, and, and rebelled. And I don't understand why. Of course, then as we're talking, you know, the issue came up of him having two children with his current wife. So, well, nothing wrong with that, except for the minor problem that when he had those two children with his current wife, she was another man's wife, married to another man. That's why Moses uses the term would in Deuteronomy 32, 29. Oh, that they were wise, that they would understand this, that they would consider their latter end. It's a would matter of them considering their latter end. It's totally a matter of their will that they would consider their latter end. No one can force a person to do that. They must be willing themselves to consider their latter end. And from that I can see I couldn't persuade him that to consider his latter end. I was not able to persuade him to consider the cave at the end of his field. It was clear to me that it was his sin that he was not willing to face that made him not willing to consider the cave at the end of his field. He wasn't willing to consider the grave at the end of his life. And I was frustrated. I was not able to get him to do this. All I could do is to take my frustration to God in prayer for him, which I did after he left. And I was cleaning the dishes, and I took his dirty plate, and I held it up to God, and I said, Oh, God, this plate is my friend's heart. <laughs> it's dirty. It's dirty with sin And as I take this sponge and this soap and clean this plate, I'm praying, as I do that, that you would clean the heart of my friend with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never seen a plate get so clean before. 
It was like a mirror. <laughs> we see in verse 9 that Abraham told them that he wanted the cave of Machpelah, and he's willing to pay whatever it was worth, as he said in verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of burying place amongst you. He wanted a burying place. That's all he wanted. He wanted a burying place. Why did he want a burying place? Why did he take such care of Sarah's body after she died? Why didn't Abraham just throw her body away and say, well, you know, why didn't he just burn it up? Why didn't he cremate it? Why didn't he say, I know a way to get the dead out of my sight. I'll just just, uh, destroy the body. It was because Abraham did not believe when you're dead, you're dead. And Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead. And even though worms were going to destroy her body, he took care as best he could to do what he could to care for it before the resurrection. So he wanted to secure a place for Sarah to be buried, at which would be the same place that he was going to be buried at, just like I secured a place for Cheryl to be buried, and then a, a place next to it. We always joked about that. We said, we'll have to put, she hated electronics. So I said, I'll put an intercom between it, near to where Bert Poole is buried. But as Abraham buried Sarah in that cave, it was with hope, and the cave represented for Abraham a very special place of hope. It was the hope of the resurrection. And the Bible teaches us that there are two great hopes with two great purposes which God has. There is an earthly hope and a purpose, and there is a heavenly hope and a purpose. There will be a new earth, and there will be a new heaven. And this earth in which you and I are living is going to go on through eternity. It's going to go on into eternity. It's not going for the trash can. It's not going for the garbage heap. It's going to be renewed. And that was the hope that Abraham had. For now, sin has taken over the earth. But our God is going to cleanse this earth from sin, and it's going to go into eternity. It's interesting, when you think about sin taking over the earth here, this cave of Machpelah, where Abraham and his family are buried, today is in present-day Hebron, about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And Hebron today is an Arab town. It's a very famous, it's a part of the West Bank. Very famous, especially among Jewish people, because in 1929, there was the, uh, the Arabs massacred Jews in Hebron. It's interesting, 67 Jews were killed, same number has been lost today in the Gaza War. But Hebron today, and they moved the yeshiva from there to Jerusalem at that time, Hebron today is a very dangerous town. And today, if you wanted to go see the cave of Machpelah, you risk your life. You risk your life to go do it. First of all, you can find it because there's a Muslim mosque built over it. And you go in there and you look down some hole and they say, okay, that's the cave of Machpelah. But Abraham knew the world's going to be cleansed and there's going to be this resurrection. Now, here we want to look at Abraham. It's very interesting because here we really see, we've already seen Abraham in action with God as the businessman who was negotiating for the saving of Sodom and Gomorrah. But here we see Abraham as the businessman negotiating with men. This is interesting for us. And so we want to consider here Abraham, the businessman, and how he's our model for how to conduct business. Because what we see in Abraham in this chapter is a model for godly businessmen. We'll return with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God in just a moment. We'd like to encourage you to sign up for Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse. It's available for free, signing up with your email by going to friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also donate online at friendshipwithgod.org to support this Bible teaching radio program. You can also call us now or after the program with your support and donation at 800 247 3051-800-247-3051. It'll help us to continue airing on this station in your city. You can also call us for a free gift 
for a lost Jewish friend that you know that needs to be reached with the gospel. Tom Cantor and Israel Restoration Ministries will give you a free gift to reach your lost Jewish friend, and that's made available by your donations and your support, but we'll provide that free if you have a lost Jewish friend that needs to be reached with the gospel. Call us at 800-247-3051. So the first characteristic we see of a godly businessman in Abraham is in verses 7 through 8, where Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of land, even the children of Heth. In verse 7, verse 8, it says, Hear me and entreat for me to Ephron the son of Zoar. So when we see Abraham, and this is not just the first place, it does it another time. In this chapter, putting his face on the ground to the children of Heth, when we see him asking them to intercede for him to Ephron, we see that Abraham was humble in his business dealings. He was a humble man. There was no arrogance in Abraham. There was just the sweet spirit of humility in Abraham, the businessman. And notice when Abraham does meet Ephraim and speak with him directly, that it says in verses 12 to 13, and Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. And he spoke unto Ephraim in the audience of the people of the land, saying, but if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. So here we see emphasized that Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. And it was in the audience of the people of the land. You know, it's one thing for Abraham to have humbled himself by bowing down before one person privately. But for Abraham to humble himself by bowing down before the people of the land, that was much harder. And then notice that what Abraham says in verse 13 to this Hittite man, when he said in verse 13, he said, I pray thee, hear me. But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. See, I pray thee, hear me. Please, I'm asking for a hearing. This wasn't easy for Abraham. After all, Abraham had been promised this land by God. So why should he be buying a cave in the land that God gave to him? Abraham could have been arrogant, and he could have said, now listen to me, you Hittites. You're squatting on the land God has given to me. Could have said that. I'm not going to pay you for that cave. I own that cave. I own everything around here. And I'm ordering you to vacate this land. You're trespassers. He didn't have that spirit. This is not Abraham. He graciously was willing to pay for the land God gave him. Abraham is an example of what the Lord Jesus Christ meant in Matthew 5.40 when it says, If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And an example of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.7, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with the other. Why do you not rather take wrong? And why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Now, if you go to any leading business school, like Harvard Business School or Wharton School of Business, and you take a course on business negotiations, they will tell you not to do this that Abraham did. They'll tell you that when you humble yourself, you make yourself look weak to the other side, and that puts you in a weak position where you can be taken advantage of. You always negotiate from the strong position. They'll tell you that. Negotiate from a position of strength, not from a position of weakness. And it wasn't easy for Abraham to humble himself before the sons of Heth. And it's never easy to be humbled. It takes an act of our will. It's interesting in verse 7 that it doesn't just say Abraham bowed, to the people of the land. Notice what it says. Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land. He bowed himself to the people of the land. Notice how this is emphasized again when Abraham bows a second time in verse 12. And Abraham bowed down himself 
before the people of the land. See? Verse 7, he bowed himself to the people of the land. Verse 12, he bowed down himself before the people of the land. These descriptions of Abraham bowing himself, bowing himself down, it portrays to us that this was something that didn't come naturally to Abraham. It doesn't come naturally to us. These descriptions teach us that there's a side of Abraham that said, I'm not going to bow down before these God-hating idolaters. And then there's a side of Abraham that said, oh, yes, you will, Abraham. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take my hand, his own hand, I'm going to bow you down. That's the side in Abraham that bowed down himself before the people of the land. That side of Abraham that humbled Abraham publicly, that went against Abraham's natural inclination to stand proud. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he may exalt you in due time. Which brings about a picture that we're to take our own hand and humble ourselves down when we don't feel like it. That's the first characteristics of a godly businessman. He's humble. He's not arrogant. He humbles himself by honoring others who are not believers. The second characteristic we see an Abraham businessman is in verse 8. He communed with them, if it be in your mind. And then he says, and entreat for me. So he asked the sons of Heth to entreat for him. He needs the cave. He really, really needs the cave. Should I say it again? He needs the cave. <laughs> he really needs the cave of Machpelah. Sarah's body is deteriorating fast, and there's pressure on Abraham to get the deal done fast so he can put Sarah's body in that cave. Pressure on Abraham could have easily made Abraham anxious to make sure that nothing went wrong in the business deal to get the cave. It would have been very easy for Abraham to get under pressure, to get uptight, to get anxious, to jump in and say, get that cave at any cost. It would have been easy for Abraham to get into the mode of, by hook or crook, get the cave. And most business deals are like that. There's a need, there's a pressure, there's a temptation to get the deal by hook or crook. But Abraham, as the godly businessman, he says to himself that he only wants the cave if God wants him to have the cave. And so Abraham resists the temptation to get the cave by hook or crook, and Abraham steps away from the pressure, and he asks the sons of Heth to go intercede for him. And if Abraham had yielded to this pressure of getting the cave at any cost, then he would have said that he wanted to deal directly with Ephraim, make sure nothing went wrong, to get the deal done. But Abraham casts the outcome into the hands of the sons of Heth, who will intercede for him. And we see him as he does that. He's really casting the outcome into the hands of God. He's taking the position that he only wants the cave, it's the will of God. And if it's the will of God, then the sons of Heth will be successful in their intercession for him. And if God doesn't want him to have the cave, then the sons of Heth will not be successful. In either case, Abraham has peace. He has peace that God will make the decision to either get the cave or not get the cave for Abraham. And he walks away with peace. He's not in this torment of anxiety. Now, if you go to any leading business school, like Harvard Business School or Wharton School of Business, and you take a course on business negotiations, they'll tell you, don't do this. They'll say, don't do this. They'll tell you, take control yourself. The business negotiation never entrusts the deal to a third party because that puts you in a very vulnerable position. So there's a real temptation for the Christian businessman for him to see his business opportunity and said, that's an unbelievable opportunity. It must be from God. Thank you, Lord. I'll take it over from here. And when he does that, he's effectively pushing God out of the way and reverting to the get the deal by hook or crook. And the proof that he's done this is that there's anxiety. There's no peace. And if he gets the deal, there's no peace because he doesn't know if God really wanted him to have it. And if he doesn't get the deal, there's no peace because he second guesses he did something wrong and he lost the deal. But what we see Abraham doing, asking the sons of Heth to intercede for him, it brings Abraham peace, who's trusting God. He's removing himself from the initial contact with Ephraim so that if the sons of Heth are successful, that was God. If they're not successful, that was God. He trusts God. God knew that he had need for a place to bury the body of Sarah. God knew its body was stinking. 
And in his business dealings, Abraham trusted in the words, your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All those things, chump change for God. That's a paraphrase. So Abraham trusted that his heavenly father saw the fast deterioration of Sarah's body and knew he needed a place. And notice too that when Abraham asked the sons of Heth to intercede for him, his instructions were, I'll pay for as much money as it takes to get the deal done. That's not what he said. He says, I'll pay for as much money as it is worth. He says it. So he tells the sons of Heth that they were to tell Ephraim, I'm willing to pay as much money as it's worth, not as much money as you want. I'll pay the market value, not what the market will bear. Because Abraham was an honest dealer, and that was another characteristic of a Christian businessman. The deal should be right for both sides. You know, years ago, we had some stainless steel fabrication done by a company, and right after we paid for it, we found out they did it wrong, and we pointed out to them, and they came back to him and said, there's not enough money in that job for us to go back and make it right. So Abraham told the sons of Heth that he was willing to pay market value, and by telling them that, he was further putting it into the hands of God. Another wonderful Bible study from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. And for any donation of $100 or more, we will send you Tom Cantor's new Friendship with God Study and Reference Bible. It's over 2,200 pages with over 600 pages of Bible helps. has a genuine lambskin leather cover. It has over 20 full-color custom maps and timelines. It's got a prophecy and fulfillment section, names of the Messiah section, the life of Joseph study section, and so many other amazing Bible helps. It's yours for a donation of $100. Call us 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. 